Hi, this is John Ankerberg, and today I want to present to you my very, very good friend, Dr. Wayne Barber. For 18 years, he was pastor of the huge Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. He was co-teacher with Kay Arthur for 14 years at Precept Ministries. He studied with Dr. Spiro Zodiades and co-hosted with him the national radio and TV program, New Testament Light, for 10 years. Wayne has taught the message of living grace which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, all around the world. He is president, founder, and principal speaker of Living Grace Ministries. And in February of 2011, he returned to Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, as senior pastor. Wayne's authored several books. The most recent one is entitled Living Grace, Letting Jesus Be Jesus in You. And he has also co-authored The Following God, series of studies published by AMG. I hope that you'll enjoy listening to Dr. Wayne Barber. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. And we're going to speak, to, I want to speak tonight on, this is the last chapter. This is Paul's finishing out the book. And I want to talk about Daddy is coming. Daddy is coming. And this is, like I said, this is the last chapter in our study of 2 Corinthians and this study began February the 5th and 6th of 2005. <laughs> and we're finally coming down, winding it up. Now, Paul is closing the epistle with a promise and a warning and a whatever it would be to who's, whoever heard, he's coming back to visit Corinth. Oh, man, Daddy is coming. I'll never forget how when I was growing up, when I had done something wrong, I'll never forget the sound of my daddy coming in the front door, coming home from work. It was, a, it was something that's frozen in my memory for all time. Uh, here comes the judge. Daddy is home. I do remember one situation. I've got to tell you about it. I had gone catfishing with a bunch of my friends. Now, you know what a catfish is. Hopefully, you know what that is. You know I don't like cats, but I'm not talking about cats. I'm talking about catfish. And I do like catfish. And my daddy had a friend of his that owned a tire place, and they had these big truck tires, and when they were unusable anymore, they just sort of threw them to the side and after a while would dispose of them. But he would call him up, and we would go by and pick up an old unused truck tire, I mean unusable truck tire, and we'd take it with us. We'd take that truck tire, we'd soak it in kerosene and light it, and that was our fire for the night. Fish all night long for catfish, either on the Roanoke River, James River, there in Virginia. And, of course, you don't want to be downwind from it, but it, it was good. It kept you going all night long. It would just burn and burn and burn and burn. And we would use a stink bait. Anybody ever hear every catfish know what I'm talking about? Oh, okay, good. Some of you do. And, I mean, it would, it would smell to high heavens. You don't want to be around that stuff. And we would throw it out. And this particular night, we had caught at least 50 catfish. I mean, we were killing them. We just caught them all night long. Well, we came back in when it was daybreak. That's how you knew when to quit. When it was daybreak, they quit biting anyway, so we took off and went home. Now, the way we cleaned those fish is really going to make you excited that I told you. We had a big oak tree in our backyard. I couldn't even put my arm but on one side of it. It was huge. And you take those catfish and you, dry, you take a nail and nail them to the tree. And then you cut around the, the catfish's head around the gills and you skin it. 
and then you cut the head off and then you clean the catfish and you got a nice piece of meat there to fry with some french fries and some hush puppies it was wonderful well we did all of that 50 some catfish well everybody left me after it was they were cleaned everybody was tired they wanted to go home all my buddies and so we left those catfish heads on the tree in the middle of august and uh, not only that, but I had forgotten to take the stink bait out of the trunk of the car. And I went in and went to bed. And about 3 o'clock that afternoon, my mama woke me up and she said, Son, do you realize that we've got every cat in seven counties in the backyard? And I said, What's wrong? And then it hit me. Oh, no. And then I remembered myself. without. She didn't even know. I said, Oh, my goodness, that stink bait is in the trunk of the car. Oh, how I dreaded my father coming home. You know, I have figured it out. I think I'd be seven feet tall if I'd have behaved myself when I was growing up. Man, when my daddy walked in that door, it was over. Daddy is home. You know, it wasn't so bad between that time that my mother reminded me of the catfish heads on the tree, and then I remembered the other. It wasn't so bad because he wasn't home yet. But, buddy, when he got home, things change. You say, Wayne, why would in the world would you tell that at the beginning of a message? Because Paul is the spiritual father of the church of Corinth, and daddy is coming home. I would love to have been a fly on the wall when, he got, when they got this epistle, when they received this letter. Those who had repented of their sins back in chapter 7 and had turned their hearts back toward the Lord and now were, were open to the apostle Paul probably rejoiced at the news. But those who had continued in their sin, including, some of their sin was including tearing Paul down and criticizing him and, and, and his apostleship, they were probably, and I would say without a doubt, very nervous. Paul says that the next visit, this next visit, he's coming to see him, would be his third visit. Look at verse 1 in chapter 13. This is the third time I'm coming to you. I don't know why scholars can't agree with the fact that this is his third visit. Uh, most of them say that since there's no second visit recorded, this couldn't be his third visit. You know, I'm much simpler in my mind than that. What does the text say? It says it's his third visit. That's good enough for me. That, that means maybe his second visit maybe wasn't recorded or something. I don't know. But he continues and does an interesting thing in verse 1. He quotes from the Old Testament a principle of the way God exercises his judgment. It says in verse 1, again, this is the third time I'm coming to you. Every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now, what is he talking about? The Old Testament passage that he quotes from is either Deuteronomy 17, 6, which says, on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. Or Deuteronomy 19, 15, which says, a single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. Now the word in our text, the word fact, in the little phrase, every fact is to be confirmed, is the word rhema. And rhema is the Greek word for word, for word, but also it's the subjective spoken word. Now Paul is speaking about every accusation, every charge 
made against those who were in sin and even those accusations against Paul himself. The word Jesus used this word in Matthew 18, 16. It's in the context of the discipline of a brother. He says, but if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. In Matthew 27, 14, it says, and he did not answer him. Jesus did not answer him with regard to even a single charge. And that's the same word translated fact in two places, charge here, so that the governor was quite amazed. Every fact is to be confirmed. The word confirmed and the phrase every fact is to be confirmed is the word istemi. Istemi means it must be established as a fact. Now, our Lord Jesus took the Old Testament principle of how they would go about judging a sin with two or three witnesses and brings it into the New Testament as we just read in Matthew 18 and verse 16. And, and Paul does something else when he writes young Timothy in his pastoral epistles. He, 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 said, to, he said to him uh, concerning charges that, that would come against an elder, which, by the way, was happening with Corinth against Paul. He said, he said this to them in 1 Timothy 5, 19. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. So what have we learned from this? In the judgment of God, one is never punished without sufficient evidence to prove him guilty. Just like it used to be in our country before a lot of things have happened. It used to be you're innocent until you're proven guilty. Now, because of the mass media, you're guilty until you're proven innocent. But God says, no, sir, you are innocent until it is absolutely, without a shadow of a doubt, proven that you are guilty. So when Paul gets to Corinth for his third visit, and when he deals with the sin that's in the camp, and it's there, no one will be punished that is not proven guilty by two or three witnesses. Now, some say that, that Paul's third visit to them, that represents the testimony of three witnesses, not three different individuals, but three different visits. That could be. I mean, we, you can't go to school on that. Because he does mention in verse 2, he says he had warned them before. He says, I have previously said, when present the second time, and though now absent, I say in advance to those who have sinned in the past and to all the rest as well, that if I come again, I will not spare anyone. And so, we might not have the record of the other time they were warned. And some, I can see why they would say that. The point is, though, that when he gets to Corinth, he's going to deal with the sin that they have not been willing to deal with and those false teachers making those accusations. It's not going to go away. Paul's coming. Daddy's coming home. He's going to deal with it when he gets there. So far, he has restrained from personally disciplining anybody there. And he's given them two opportunities, it seems, to repent. But now the time is come. Daddy is coming home. Ironically, this is really ironic to me. The proof of his being an apostle, which they so wanted him to prove, is finally going to be given. But in terms that they would best choose to avoid. Paul was, in fact, very weak in himself. But they would see... As they would see, Christ lived in him, and Christ was not weak. He says in verse 3, Since you are seeking for proof of the Christ who lives in me, and who is not weak toward you, but mighty in you. You know who I'm talking about. He says the term mighty in you points to the fact that they had already witnessed for themselves his power in their lives. Paul had walked in the meekness 
And it's a beautiful picture. And the gentleness of Christ. It was considered by his critics as being a weakling. Oh, yeah, he writes hard things, but he's weak when he comes. But what they didn't see, the critics, was that Christ also was considered weak when he, in his humanity, especially on this earth when he was crucified. But his power as God was manifested in the fact of his resurrection, and he now lives, and not only that, he lives in Paul and in every believer. He says in verse 4, For indeed he was crucified because of weakness, yet he lives because of the power of God. Now Paul shows that when he comes to Corinth, weak as he may appear, the resurrected Christ living in him is going to be the power to deal with what they have to deal with. Paul would come in fellowship with the risen Christ and would be in his power to work with these errant Corinthians. He says, for we also are weak in him, yet we will live with him because of the power of God directed toward you. Now, here's what I want us to see. We, we can't really jump into the situation of Corinth because we're not Corinth. This is a different place and a different time. However, what did they need to do to prepare for Daddy coming? What were the things that he addresses to them? If they'll go ahead and do, it'll be a whole lot less severe when he shows up. And, and here's what I want you to think about. You know, when I'm not worried about the Apostle Paul coming, I'm concerned about Jesus coming for his church. And I think if you'll look at this, it's almost a direct parallel of how we need to be prepared when our Lord Jesus comes. And I believe it'll be for his church and then later come with his church. What, whatever you believe, hang on to that. But what do we need to do to prepare for his coming? Paul tried to tell them, this is, these are some things you need to do. Now, what do we need to do in preparation? I think that they parallel each other beautifully. First of all, we should be found consistent in examining ourselves. Verse 5 and 6. And what I mean by that is examining ourselves instead of criticizing others. 2 Corinthians 13, 5, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Now, unless, indeed, you fail the test. Isn't it interesting that the most critical people in God's family here, the church on this earth, are people who will criticize others so quickly, but they never seem to look at themselves. They don't seem to get the fact that even their verbal verbalization of their criticism and judgmental attitudes towards others points right to the fact that obviously they're not walking in Christ. They're not living by faith because that's not what that produces. Paul says the very idea of your being critical of me, you need to test yourselves to see if you are living in the faith as you should. Let me read it again. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith examine yourselves. Now, I may differ with some of you in what I think this means. The word test is the word pirazo. And the word pirazo is used over in James and talks about temptation. Uh, the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament says that the word carries with it an expression of doubt. In other words, you're testing something because you doubt if it's really real. If I went over to Brother Dave's house and I say he had a creek running behind him, he may. <laughs> I don't think you do. I think it's dry. But I say I went over to his house and I said, oh, Dave, man, I, I want to play in your creek because I don't have anything else to do. I'm just a pastor. And so he said, yeah, come on. 
So I get out in the water and I'm having the best time and I find me a gold looking stone and I say, look at this, there's a bunch of them in here. And I get a whole bucket full of gold stones and I bring them to Dave and I say, Dave, gold, I found gold in your creek and it's not mine, it's yours, I'm going to give it to you. And I'm so excited and I walk away and Dave says, gold, I know Wayne, he wouldn't know gold if he fell over it. I'm going to put this to the test, Pirazzo, because I want to find out I don't think it's really gold. I'm going to prove that it's not. That's that word. It's, very, it's a very special word. It's used many times in the New Testament. The other word that's used at the end of the verse is dokimos, and that means to be proven genuine. So he says there's a little bit of a, Paul is apprehensive of what's going on there. He begins to sense that they're not doing what, what he, he's told them to do. It's in the present tense. It's in the imperative mood. He says, now I'm commanding you, you be consistently, constantly testing or examining yourselves. This is not a one-time sit down and take a test type of thing. Test yourselves to see if you are, and the word are is in the present tense, that you're continually in the faith. Test yourselves consistently and see if you're continually in the faith. Now here's what I believe he's saying there. I believe that Paul is saying examine yourself to see whether or not you're living in the faith. Now, some people believe that Paul is saying, examine yourself to see if you're even Christian. Well, that could be, but here's my, here's my point with that. I believe he's stressing the need for self-examination of one's spiritual life and conduct. The reason I believe that is because Paul has several times affirmed their salvation in his epistle. And I don't think now he would turn around and speak to the whole church by saying, test yourself to see if you're even saved. In chapter 1, verse 1, he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth. That's who the letter's written to. In 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22, he says, Now he who establishes us with you, in other words, he's established both of us in Christ and anointed us as God, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. In chapter 3, verses 1, 2, and 3, are we beginning to commend ourselves again, he says, to this church in Corinth? Or do we need as some letters of commendation to you or from you? And then he says so beautifully, you are our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, yes, but written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. And that's just a few places. And it's at least five times in 1 Corinthians he does, again, the same thing. He affirms the fact of their faith. So I believe what he's saying to them, and to me it makes more sense in the context, check and see if you're holding on to the faith, if you're living in him. He continues in verse 5 and says, Don't you know that Christ is living in you? Unless you're reprobates or unless you are you're, you're indeed fail the test. That's adokimos. It means you're without proven genuine. He said, yeah, I guess so. Maybe some of you could turn up that way. But my point is, Christ lives in you. Are you living in him? The Corinthians needed to remember Christ lived in them, just like the believers of the 21st century need to remember Christ lives in us. And then if you, if you check it out, he will show you that he, his point is, he will show you that he's living in me. That's what he's trying to say. If you don't think at this point I'm authentic, 
then you first of all check on yourself. Make sure you're walking with God. Make sure you're walking by faith. And if you are, the same Christ that lives in you lives in me. And he will show you that I'm who I say I am. Verse 6, but I trust that you will realize that we ourselves do not fail the test. We're proven genuine. Now, they had demanded proof that Christ was speaking through Paul. So now he points to the fact, again, that if they were allowing him to live through them and in them and through them, then they would have that discernment already. They needed to look at themselves before they looked at at Paul. And, you know, I can't help but think, as we know the Lord Jesus is coming back for his church, I don't need to be in the business of finding your faults and your faults and your faults. I need to be coming before God every day to make sure I'm living in Him. I know He's living in me, but am I living in Him? Am I letting Jesus be Jesus in my life? And that's a consistent thing. It's not a one-time thing. Every day in your walk, am I walking with Him? Am I living in Him? Is this by faith or is this my ugly old flesh? How am I living? And if I'll do that, when He comes, then I'm ready to see Him. When our Lord comes, we should be consistent in examining ourselves. And I'll tell you why. We may be surprised what we might see. What God's been trying to show us about us, not about everybody else. This is a true story, and it's a sad story. I picked it up. It was an article that I picked up. A fatal incident involving the lives of four young people took place upon one of the nation's highways. The evidence that liquor was the culprit was found in the broken whiskey bottles among the debris and mangled bodies of the four youthful victims. The father of one of the girls in frenzied anguish over the untimely death of his beautiful daughter threatened to kill the one who provided the four young people with liquor. But upon his going to the cupboard where he kept his supply of choice beverages, he found a note in his daughter's handwriting. Daddy, we're taking along some of your good liquor. I know you won't mind. You see, before we point the finger, before we point the finger, we need to be examining ourselves every day of our life. Because when he comes, what will he find? Remember he said, when I come, will there even be faith upon the earth? We need to be examining our own lives. Secondly, we should be found persistent in doing what is right. Consistent in examining ourselves, but persistent in doing what is right, verses 7 through 9. Now, what I mean there is by doing what is right and not doing what is wrong, it comes up in verse 7. Now, we pray to God that you do no wrong, not that we ourselves may appear approved, but that you may do what is right, even though we may appear unapproved. Now, Paul's heart was that the believers in Corinth would live as they should live. That's what he means by doing right, that they would walk by faith, that that they would trust the one living in them to live through them. Now, we pray to God that you do no wrong. Now, that word pray is in the present tense in the middle voice. In other words, we're consistently praying here, and something's driving this prayer. You see, the sinful behavior and the apprehension that he was feeling towards the Corinthian church when he got there on his third visit was motivating Paul and his team to consistently pray that they live right. He and his team were praying that they would do no wrong. Now, the word wrong in verse 7 is an interesting word. It's the word kakos, K-A-K-O-S, which is the word that means constitutional evil. It's, in other words, it's evil that's there 
through it, through in, throughout, but it may not be doing anything. Poneros is evil that injures somebody, but Kakos is that which is just evil in itself. Now listen to this, listen to this. This gets exciting to me. Every time you study that word, it comes up, it always attached to the flesh. That word is used every time the flesh is mentioned almost in the New Testament. Now, for a believer, this evil, this wrong, only occurs in his life when he's not living, trusting Christ. And you see, it can be religious evil. It can be rebellious evil, as Romans teaches us. But it's flesh, and flesh is evil in God's sight. And so he says, I don't want you living after the flesh. I don't want you doing what the flesh does. A believer should be concerned that he live by faith and does not allow the flesh to dominate the choices in his life. Be consistently examining yourself so that, so that you can understand whether or not you're persistent in doing what's right and not doing what's of the flesh, what is wrong. They should do this regardless of how others live around them. You know, the reason we live the way we live is not because this person is or this person isn't. It's because of what Christ has done in our lives. Paul goes on and says, now we pray that God, to God that you do no wrong. Not that we ourselves may appear approved, but that you may do what is right. Now listen, even though we may appear unapproved. You see, Paul and his team were being criticized and made to appear as if they were unapproved. That's that same word. They're not, they're not legitimate, you see. And he said, but that shouldn't matter to you. Even though it's wrong, and even though it's false, he says, the believers at Corinth, you need to live your life because of Christ, not because of us. Live by faith simply because of what he's done in your heart, not because how Paul lived or how his team lived. He goes on to say, for we can do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. It's so amazing to me. Even though Paul was made to appear unapproved, he did what was right. And doing what was right in his life involved his daily responsibility to never do anything against the truth. Oh, oh, if we could live that way today. You know, it's the Word of God. It's to govern our hearts and our lives. It, it's incredible to me when I was in conference work, how many people I ran into that didn't even know the Word of God. I, I had a Bible study of people that had been in our church for years when I was in Chattanooga, and I said, we're going to study Philippians. And one guy went to everybody and said, we're studying the book of Philistines. I want all of you to come. And that, that shot a hole in my heart. You mean to tell me you don't even know where the book of Philippians is? And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, Paul says, I cannot live against the truth. My life supports the truth. It's dominated by the truth. It's, it, everything comes from the truth. I, I only live for the truth. That's what doing right was in his life. And doing what was right also made, meant making sacrifices that were necessary for the sake of others, the other believers in Corinth. He says in verse 9, for we rejoice when we ourselves are weak, but you are strong. And he's already qualified for us in chapter 12 what all made him weak. He said, this, is also, we, this we also pray for, that you be made complete. You see, Paul so wanted the Corinthians to grow in their faith that he was willing to do what was right in his own life. He, he lived never opposing the truth. He lived let the truth reign in his life. And that caused him to make all kinds of sacrifices so that others around him could be matured in their faith. The word complete is katotesis. 
it means to be made fully ready. He said, I am willing to make any sacrifice for you so that you might be made fully ready. Now it's time that they examine themselves. They've been looking at Paul. He says, now look at yourself. Make sure that, that you're doing what's right, which means are you living according to the truth and are you making sacrifices for one another so that you might grow up into maturity in the Lord? Well, I tell you, the emphasis on evangelism in our day scares me, and I don't, don't hear me wrong. I'm, an, I'm evangelistic in my heart. But it seems like it's all about getting them in, never equipping them once they're there. And it scares me. It's like the old boy that's out elk hunting, and he, and he has a guide. And they're a long way from camp, and camp was 20 miles from anywhere. And he gets his, he gets his scope up and his rifle up, and his scope crosshairs are on that big 7x7 seven seven bull. And he's just getting ready to pull the trigger, and the guide taps him on the shoulder and says, let me remind you before you pull the trigger, it's five miles back to camp. You know what I'm talking about there? The responsibility is about to start. And folks, I want to tell you, our heart needs, yes, to be, oh, to share with everyone and to see them come to know Christ. But once they come to know Christ, to make whatever concession necessary to make sure they are made completely ready for whatever's ahead of them. And that's the maturity, that's the discipleship of every believer. And finally, and I have to hurry, we should be found instant in building up our brother. Instant in building up our brother. Consistent in examining ourselves. Persistent in doing what's right, not what's of the flesh. And instant, insistent in building up our brother in verse 10. Building him up, not tearing him down. He says in verse 10, for this reason I'm writing these things while absent so that when present I need not use severity in accordance with the authority which the Lord gave me for building up and for not tearing down. Paul was very considerate of others. And he only said the hard things to the church of Corinth to build up their, their faith and their, and, and, to, and their discernment. That's all. He said, for this reason I'm writing these things while absent. And I think what he means there is not just what we've just looked at, but all the chapter 10 all the way over, the things he's had to say. He, he's had to, some harsh things. He's blasted the false teachers, and he's had to say those things so that the Corinthians would wake up and realize what they, who they've been listening to have not been true uh, to the Word of God. For this reason, I'm writing these things while absent. What reason? So that when present, I need not use severity in accordance with the authority which the Lord gave me for building up and for not tearing down. Well, Paul said, I don't want to come and embarrass you in front of everybody. I don't want to come and have to scold you in front of everybody. I'm asking you. I'm telling you the hard things. Deal with it now. Make my homecoming a sweet time. Be ready for me when I come. The word severity is the word opotomos, which means curtly or abruptly. If they would just simply listen to him, then they would be ready when he came. And I couldn't help but think. That's exactly the way it is, isn't it? If we just listen to what the Word says to us now, if we would just live the way we're supposed to and not do wrong, live after the flesh, that would cause us to become concerned with one another. Yes, for the lost, but also for each other. We'd do whatever is necessary to build each other up. And then the church is ready. It's ready when the Lord comes in for His church. How will you be found when He returns? Consistently examining yourself instead of criticizing others? Will you be found persistently doing the right thing instead of living after the flesh? 
And will you be found insistent on building up your brother? Daddy's coming. Are you ready? Well, I've gotten all kinds of articles this week on how many people think the rapture is going to be between right now and November. And I'm thinking, okay, <laughs> that's quick. I don't know when it's going to be. I just think you ought to live every day as if he's coming today. And I wonder, how's he going to find us? How's he going to find us when he comes? We're going to find critical of our brother or examining ourselves so that we might live right and do what's right. And are we going to be burdened to see others made ready when he comes? Does he even say the hard things if needed so that they might be ready when he comes? For additional resources, log on to jashow.org. That's jashow.org.